Revelation chapter 15. This chapter is a chapter that is a heavenly scene. This whole entire chapter is taking place or will take place in the heavens at the appropriate time in heaven. And chapter 15 and 16 actually go together. They go together, and we're not going to cover chapter 16 today. We will look at that next week, but we will look at the prelude to that last, or that that 16th chapter. We will look at the prelude of that today, chapter 15. This chapter is what I would like to call the calm before the storm, or you could call it the deep breath before the final roar. The deep breath before the final roar. And who's roaring? It's Jesus Christ. He came first as the meek and mild baby in the, in the manger, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when he returns in glory, he is not coming back as the meek and mild lamb that seems uh, defenseless. No, he's coming back as a lion. And he's coming back for vengeance. It's a good time to be on the Lord's side when he returns. Because as fierce and as wonderful as his love is, which we have all been the beneficiaries of, it's also true how great is his wrath when he has exhausted all possibilities for a human soul and they've continued to reject. There's a moment where wrath has to begin. And that is not something the Lord delights in, I can tell you. If you know the character of God at all, you know that he does not delight in that at all. He would much rather have you give your heart to him and live. And it's really not so bad, is it? Is he such a bad taskmaster? (laughs) I mean, is there anything bad about him? All we have to do is be willing to give up our sin and trust in him and confess our sin. Is that so hard? Actually, it is for the natural man. But it's the calm before the storm. And we'll see that chapters 16 through 18 are scenes, uh, again, after when we get into it, they will be occurring on the earth. In fact, all throughout Revelation, you've seen this, we've been seeing this pattern of things that happen in the heavens, things that happen in the earth, things that happen in the heavens, things that happen in the earth, and it continues going in that fashion all the way through the book of Revelation. And it ought to encourage you that the directive is coming from heaven. It starts in heaven and ends on the earth, and that's the way it is. God commands, it comes to pass. It is that simple. He is in control. He's in charge. He has the right over his creation to do as he wills. And he is very fair. God is very fair. Actually, let me say this. God is just. He is just in all that he does. Was he fair to choose Jacob over Esau? Was it fair to Esau, even though Esau was blessed and had opportunities? No, it's not fair when God chooses someone for a specific reason. Was it fair that the tribe of Levi got chosen out of all the 12 tribes to to lead in the worship of Israel? Was it fair to the other tribes? No, it wasn't fair. It was just. God makes decisions, and it's our prerogative, it's our joy to get in line with that. It's not a democracy with God. It's a theocracy. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to that day because there's no... Uh, there's no, um, it's fair, and everything is done perfectly. You get my point, and I'm longing for that day. But when we do get into chapter 16, at the end of chapter 16, chronologically, that will bring us right into chapter 19, even though there's chapters 17 and 18. But remember, there are parenthetical chapters in the book of Revelation. Chapters 17 and 18 are two of those parenthetical chapters, meaning it talks about the fall of Babylon, And it goes into great detail about the false religious system and the economic system that's going to be in place on the earth. And so, there we go. And so, that is what is going to happen. And um, so let's look at chapter 15. Let's just read it. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven... Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, they were standing on the sea of glass having harps of God, 
They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you? Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Notice in verse 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girt with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, or vials in the King James, full of the wrath of God, who lives, what? Forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Let's go back to verse 1 here. This is a really interesting thing. Again, the calm before the storm. Because uh, as we're going to see, we've already seen the, the seal judgments. We've already seen the trumpet judgments. And now... We are getting to the seven last vials or the seven last plagues, the seven last vials or bowls of wrath. This is going to be, it's sort of like in in, in a music, in a song, how there is a crescendo of a volume that comes up to the, the, the climax of the song. It could be right at the chorus section where the song is going and then you hit that chorus. We hit some today and it's just like, ah, when you finally hit that chord and it's, Usually the four chord, you probably don't know, don't care. But anyway, you hit that chord and it just blows up and then you're singing with all of your heart. It's that kind of thing. There's a crescendo in this, but unfortunately it's not for joy. It's a crescendo of God's judgment. He starts off and everything is throttled. You know what I mean by that? The the seals and then the trumpets and now the vials. And it's going to be the worst and the most intense out of all of them. And it's going to happen in the second half of this tribulation period that we've been talking about. This time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible calls it. A time of great tribulation. It's also called Daniel's 70th week. We've talked about that over and over. And it's a time that Jesus said, if I didn't return to end it, no flesh would survive. That's how bad it's going to be. That's how bad it's going to be. But notice in verse 1, it says, John's speaking, Then I saw another sign in heaven. This sign... This word sign actually occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. Seven times just in the book of Revelation. And if we look at it in its singular form, there's sign and then there's signs. But the word sign, is it only occurs three times. And it uh, it is the the first time we see it is in Revelation chapter 12. Well, it reveals to us a personage in this end time scenario. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. This is speaking of Israel. And we also see another sign in uh, the, the third verse of chapter 12. What does it say? It says, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on its head. This is speaking of Satan. And we know that he is going to empower this man of sin, the beast, the Antichrist, in this last end time scenario. And he is going to preside over a revived Roman Empire. And we also see the word sign here in the first verse of Revelation 15. Another sign I saw, seven angels having seven last plagues. For in them, notice, the wrath of God is complete. And it's interesting, out of all those times... We're not going to look at the other three, but we look at these three. And out of all of the seven times this is mentioned, only two are in a context that are good. And it's in Roman, or, uh, Revelation 12.1 and here in Revelation 15, verse 1. Revelation 12.1 talks about the woman, Israel. And then now it talks about the seven uh, angels with the seven last plagues. Every other connotation is in an evil context. And so now we have... These, these two personages in this time period. And notice it says seven angels. These seven angels, we've seen seven angels prior in the book of Revelation. When we were looking at the trumpet judgments, we saw a, a very distinct group of seven. 
you'll remember that in Revelation chapter 11, what does it say? Then the seventh angel. Notice the definite article. I don't want to get too technical here, but the seventh angel. And then in, prior to that, it will be the sixth angel, the, the fifth angel, the fourth angel, the third, etc., etc. Very specific group of people. And now we get to this area now, and it says that Seven angels sounded without the definite article. Seven different people, seven different angels are going to be responsible for bringing forth this judgment out of the throne room of God. And I love the fact that God doesn't even need to get up off of his throne. He's almighty God. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but the more time goes on, the more I, I, I just joy and I revel in the idea of his all-loving power, his all-loving perfection, because it's completely unadulterated. It's completely uncorrupted. He is perfect in everything that he does. And I don't know about you, but I just, I love that. I can't wait for that day when we are in his presence, because that's the way it's going to be. And there's going to be no, uh, nothing is going to be false. There's going to be no deception Everything is going to be known, and it's going to be wonderful, folks. We've never experienced anything like it on this planet. Since you were born up until now, you've never, I have never experienced anything like that. But God doesn't even need to get off his throne. He dispatches angels to do his last pouring out of wrath upon the earth. Not because he's tuned out. He's in complete control, seated. He knows How great is our God. Amen? How great is he? Notice that these seven angels, they have seven last plagues. These seven last plagues are the final heptad of judgments that we've been talking about. There's three different heptads, right? We looked at the seals. We looked at the the trumpets. And now we look at these seven last plagues. And you remember this familiar graphic that I showed you. Well, now, well, actually next week, we're going to be getting into that final seven plagues. Notice in verse 1, back in our text, it says that in them the wrath of God is complete. This phrase intimates that God was pouring out his wrath prior to this. Now, it's no surprise to us that the seals and the trumpet judgments, those were all judgments. There are, but there are people who believe that those things really weren't the judgment of God. But, but now in Revelation 16, going forward, that that is actually the judgment of God. But that's not true at all, because this actually is another proof text, this verse that we're looking at right now, that the post-tribulation view is wrong. What is the post-tribulation view? It's a view that says that the church has to go through the tribulation, and then the rapture occurs. But that violates everything in the Bible. Did you know that? The post-tribulation view is not a very good viewpoint at all. We believe in a pre-trib rapture, meaning before the wrath is poured out on the earth, we are removed. And is that just something that I would like? Yes, it is. I'll be honest with you. I would really like that. Thank you very much. Is anybody here? Raise your hand if you want to go through wrath. Oh, wow. There's nobody. Anybody online? Raising? I can't see. Oh, one person. Okay. No, nobody wants to go through that. It's nice and convenient, isn't it? And the world can mock us if they want. Oh, your crutch is Jesus. You better believe it is. What is your crutch? Heroin? What's your crutch? Alcohol? What's your crutch? Relationships? Controlled substances? Oxycodone? What is your crutch? Well, my crutch is Jesus, and I'm glad to say that he is my crutch. He is my crutch. Amen? Is he your crutch? Yeah, and you know why? Because the Bible says, what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9? Remember, memorize this verse. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many other passages and types in the Bible that corroborate this statement. But memorize this, because if we have to go through the tribulation to, to be purified, then what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient. But it says that he said on the cross, it is finished. That means it's done. No more work that needs to be done. Our redemption was bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Amen? So we believe in a pre-trib rapture. And not just us, but all the saints that went before us, going all the way back to the first century church, believe the same thing. They believe the same thing because the type of it is all over the Bible. We've already went into that when we were in uh, Revelation chapter 4. We talked about the rapture. We won't go back there now. 
But notice that the wrath of God is considered his strange work, a strange work. In Isaiah chapter 28, what does it say? In the King James Version, it says strange work, or in, your, in a version you might see unusual or foreign work. In our uh, um, verse today, it says that it is his, uh, his awesome work. But it really means strange or unusual. What does it say in Isaiah? For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work. And this is the the same place where we would get, this is his strange work. Judgment is is God's strange work. He does it because his holiness demands it. But does he like it? Is it something that he likes to do? No, he'd much rather not do it at all. But he is who he is, and he cannot deny himself, and so he must bring judgment. It's his work, his awesome work, his literally his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon what? The whole earth. The whole earth. People mock the Christian church and say, you guys have always been saying judgment is coming, but I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's coming. Trust me, it's coming. I'm not happy about it either. For me to be happy about that would have the direct, would have a heart that is not in line with God. I'm not looking forward to that. I'm so glad that we are going to be removed. The true church of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you're going to be raised incorruptible when we are raptured when you are taken up, and then these things are going to take place. Then these things are going to take place. I love what it says in Ezekiel chapter 33. These are a couple of verses I want you to write down. Just write the reference down because they're very important. You can always review the video or audio afterwards. But notice what it says in Ezekiel 33. Therefore, O son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Speak, saying, if our transgressions and if our sins be upon us and we pine away in them, how should we then live? And then God says, say unto them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and do what? And live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? That's a great message for America today, for the world. Why, why would you die? You don't need to die. Every one of us are going to die physically unless the rapture occurs first. But he's talking about eternal separation. Why will you die? Why will you be eternally separated from God? It's not his heart. What does it say in 2 Peter 3, verse 9? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing, what? That any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. No matter who it is, the worst criminal on the earth that everybody wants to just throw away and and send to the electric chair, that person in the eyes of God is a candidate of salvation if they turn their heart. And it's been remarkable over our history to see how some of the most awful criminals, serial killers that the world would be just like, you know, if I had just five minutes alone with that guy, you know, I mean, men feel that way, don't you sometimes? Am I the only one? Uh, <laughs> you know, you get so angry. You want to take matters in your own. You don't have to because God's justice is perfect. But he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants all to come to repentance. But God, his wrath is justified. And I'm this time in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 onward has been talking, we've been talking about the wrath of God. But we've also been talking about the, the greatness of God. And this is a, a difficult chapter. There is no doubt. But we have to understand that God's wrath, when it is poured out, it is justified, it's warranted by the misdeeds and the reprobate heart of those who dwell on the earth at that time. What does it say in Revelation 16? This is, we'll see this next week, that one of the angels of the waters said, you are righteous. Notice, an angel is saying this to God as these final bowls of wrath are being poured out. What, is he, what does the angel say to God? You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. Notice, for they have shed blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Even the angels say, Lord, what they've got coming, they've got coming. 
And they can say it with 100% accuracy with a right heart. Isn't that amazing? That there can be such a, a, a clinical decision in God's heart. The line has been crossed. Judgment must come. And there's no saving you at that point. God is almighty and infinite in his love, but he is almighty and infinite in his wrath as well. He is almighty God. The wrath of God is going to be poured out and completed, as it says in this verse. It's going to be complete, completed in uh, the sense of his judgment upon at least three things, namely those who have rejected the Lord and received the mark of the beast at this time period. God is also going to re- unleash his wrath on the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They are going to be cast into the lake of fire. We see that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. What does it say? And this is after Jesus comes to the earth. What does it say? In in Revelation 19, verse 20, Then the beast was captured after Christ comes back, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, notice, were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. This is the eternal resting place for the wicked dead. It's a place that God has created. That's their their ultimate place where they're going to be. And Satan himself will be put into an abyss. In Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, this abuso, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the, old, of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. And notice, he bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit. A, 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 a reserve tank, if you will. The, the, the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they're already sent to Gehenna, the lake of fire. But he holds this one, this one, Satan, who's behind it all. He holds him into a special place and lets him, puts a lid on him for a thousand years while we are enjoying a thousand years on this earth in Jerusalem with Jesus. Do you understand that? He's going to be bound. He won't be able to do anything. And his rage is going to be severe. He's going to be bound up. God is going to judge him. It's going to be complete, and it's going to be completed yet. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, God is speaking to the power behind the throne of Babylon, and he speaks directly to Satan, and it's very obvious as we read it. You don't need to go there, but just write the reference down. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, who you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I think I just said that. I will ascend, verse 14, uh, the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isn't that the lie that he spoke to Eve in the garden? You can be like God. Just take a bite. Just take a bite of that. That fruit looks good, doesn't it? Mm, pleasant for the eye. Probably tastes really good too. Mm, you could be the CEO. You could control it all. All you got to do is take a bite. We'll even throw in a, a nice a nice car with leather seats. We'll pay the cell phone bill too. All you got to do is take a bite. But notice verse 15 in Isaiah 14. What does it say? Yeah, you shall be brought down to Sheol. You'll, you'll be brought down to hell, to the lowest depths of the pit. Didn't we just talk about pit in Revelation 20? He's going to be sent to the pit. Sent to the pit. And then we're also going to see the final judgment of Satan. It will occur in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, when Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire. It reads in Revelation 20, verse 7, Now when the thousand years have been expired, we've been, we've been, he's been in, in this, this abyss, this abuso, for a thousand years. A thousand years goes by in the millennial reign of Christ. And then it says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations again. You'd think he'd get the point. If I were him, I'd come up and say, you know what? <laughs> we got this whole thing wrong. Um, I just want to be a part of your kingdom, Lord. You know, you've already said what's going to happen. I know what's coming. I'm just going to bow my knee. But does he do that? I don't even think that he's, he's capable. 
He is going to come after him. Isn't that insanity? Isn't that the most insane thing when God says this is what's going to happen? And Like he lists the things that are going to happen. It's going to happen like this. It's going to happen like this. And he goes through the thing. And behold, as you're living through them, it's exactly the way it's happening. And then you somehow think that your end, your end doom, you're going to get, a, get, a, get out of jail free card in Monopoly. Oh, no. It's not going to happen that way. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, again, this group, to gather them to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. And notice, there's not going to be Armageddon here. This is not Armageddon. This is a one quick snuff, and he's going to blow, and it's going to be gone. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's it. Instant. And notice the devil who deceived them. Now he is reunited with his two other compadres, the beast and the false prophet, in the lake of fire, where they will spend, what does it say? The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you think maybe it's just a couple of weeks that they're there? Nah. No, it says forever and ever. And they will live forever and ever in bodies that will be able to be in torment. Sorry to be so gruesome, but sometimes we have to hit, be hit with the facts. And then finally, in the great white throne judgment, death and hell, it tells us, in verses 11 through 15, we're not going to read them right now, but those, of, uh, those who go to hell now are in, in Hades, but there's coming a day when God's going to take that container, if you will, of Hades, death and hell, and he's going to take that, and he's going to cast that into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and the devil are, and that is the final end. And that's the end of everyone who rejects Christ to their very end. That's the ultimate destination, the eternal destination. Our eternal destination is a new heavens and a new earth where a new Jerusalem comes down. We'll, we'll get to that when we get to Revelation 21 and 22. Looking forward to that day, <laughs> aren't you? I mean, I'm looking forward to the rapture. I'm certainly looking forward to the second coming. I'm looking forward to the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. Looking forward to that. But what I'm really looking forward is at the end when this current heavens and this earth is dissolved with fervent heat as the Bible tells us. But notice at the end there, in that, that verse there, uh, uh, end of verse 1, it says that, that the, the wrath of God will be complete at this point. This Greek word is teleo, which, which means to, be, uh, to make an end, to be expired, to fill up or to finish, or even to pay, to pay. It's interesting that the New American Standard Version and the English Standard Version, they both translate this Greek word, with the word finished. Instead of complete, they say finished. Finished. It is finished. Does this sound familiar? It's the same word when Jesus said on the cross in John chapter 19, when he said, finally, when he gave up the ghost, and he said, it is finished, right? And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the same exact word. It is finished. Tetelestai. With the, with the article, it's tetelestai. Or teleo it means the same thing, to pay paid in full. In fact, um, it's been interesting. There's been uh, papyrus fragments that have been found from, um, from uh, tax, people who did taxes, tax, um, tax uh, what's the word I want? Yes, ta- <laughs> people who collect ta- taxes. Uh, I've lost my head. Tax collector, there we go. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, I only had one cup of coffee this morning. But they found them where they actually said, to tell us day I. When you paid your taxes, you were stamped or, or written to tell us day I. It's finished. Your, your debt has been paid. The debt has been paid. And that's exactly what Jesus spoke on the cross. It was the very last word that he spoke on the cross. To tell us day I, it is finished. I love what John Walvoord said. He says, God did not leave his work of redemption half completed. It's completed. And he will not leave his work of judgment half completed either. He will finish what he started. That's the way he is. And that's what he is. If Jesus came to earth to seek and to save the lost, there is a remnant then, unfortunately, that is left. And they have chosen not to be saved. Salvation is a decision that you have to make, and I pray you make it today. 
Don't leave this place without giving your heart to Christ. If you come in this morning and you're sitting here and you've never given your heart to Christ, listen, you must give your heart to Jesus. It's not even a question of, you know, you, you, you have, you know, it's a good idea. No, you must. Give your heart to him. I gave my heart to him when I was 24 years old and I wished now that I had given my heart as soon as I came out of the womb. It would have saved me so much pain and heartache throughout my life. I made a mess of everything. I made a mess of my life. Did you make a mess of your life? Maybe you were going along and you were thinking, well, my life was actually pretty good. Well, it was a deception. But I made a mess of my life. I wish I could go back. And while I was still sucking my thumb in my mother's womb, I wish I could have given my heart then or had my big toe in my mouth in my mother's womb. I wish I could have given my heart to the Lord then. That would have been awesome. But you come to the Lord when you come to the Lord, and it's never too late. It's never too late. Even in the tribulation period, there's going to be opportunity, folks, but it's going to be really, 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 really hard. The deception and the deceit is going to be so intense, and God is going to send a strong delusion. You've never experienced that. The devil can deceive. Have you ever been, have you ever been oppressed by the devil himself? I don't know that I ever have. Probably demons, I'm sure. Uh, but I've never been uh, oppressed by the devil himself. Now think of the one who created all things. If he sends a strong delusion, oh my goodness, you better look out. So don't think you're strong enough to go through this and say, well, I'll just wait until the church is raptured and see if this is all really true, and then I'll give my heart to the Lord. <laughs> uh, don't have that much confidence in your own self. You have no idea. And he won't force you to be with him. God will never force you to be with him. There are people on the earth, and I don't understand it, they're just like, you know what, I hate God so much. I want to be free. It sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? I want to cast his cord from me. I don't want him. I want to be my own dog. I want to do my own thing. I want to have a party with my friends in hell. You hear people talking like that? Nonsense. Foolishness. Foolishness. But God will never say, you have to come. He's going to give you the opportunity and gently... He's going to love you right to the end. He's going to love you right to the end until you take your last breath. What a loving God we serve. (laughs) Isn't he awesome? It makes you want to worship him the more, doesn't it? It makes you want to worship him the more. But notice in verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image, over his mark, over the number of his names, they're standing on the sea of glass. Who are these people? These are those who have been martyred during the tribulation period. They are standing there. They had the victory over the beast, over his image, over the mark, everything. And when we see this sea of glass, it reminds us of that heavenly scene that we saw back in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where it says in Revelation 4 verse 6, that there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and the back. The sea of glass speaks of God's purity, of his holiness. But notice that it says that it's mingled with fire because God will ultimately destroy the earth with fire. When, it, when, a, when purity is mixed with fire, that speaks of God's vengeance. In 2 Thessalonians, it talks about this. It talks about this. In fact, these two verses are probably one of the too few that speak of that God is going to destroy this earth after the millennial reign of Christ. This earth will dissolve with fire, with fervent heat. And these are two verses the biggest ones that you're going to find. In 2 Thessalonians verse 1, verse 6 says, Since it is a righteous thing, notice, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Notice, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. And what does it say in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7? This is probably one of the most poignant verses concerning this doctrine. But the heavens and the earth, which are now reserved by the same word, 
This heavens and earth, the earth that we live on, terra firma, it is preserved by the same word. They are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Notice down in verse 10 of that same chapter, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which, here it is, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens shall be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't that what he promised? Isn't that what Jesus promised? He says, I go and I prepare a place for you. It wasn't in John chapter 14. And guess what? In Revelation 21, he says, Behold, a new heavens and a new earth, for the former one passes away. It's not consumed by the flood. God said he'd never do that again, but by fire, yes. It's going to be consumed. And these martyrs are going to die. And notice it's not for nothing. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For me to live... Or for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This short time on earth is very short. It's very short. Maybe 80 years, maybe 90 years. And if you're really fortunate and you've been eating your Wheaties, you might even live to be 100 and you've taken your vitamin C. You might even live to be 100. But that's it. Then, eternity. Do you understand? And God wants to spend eternity with you. He loves you. He created you. The Bible says that while you were formed in, 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 in while you were being formed in the womb, God knew you. Isn't that what He said to Jeremiah? And the same is true for us. He knew you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. How great is that? He had a plan for me before I even knew, before I even existed. How great is that? Psalm one thirty nine. Read it. I love it. Read Psalm one thirty nine. It speaks of God's omniscience, His omnipresence. He's all-powerful. He's all places at once. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's no place you can go. And guess what? Everywhere there is, God is, and he can be. He can meet you in the dungeon. He can meet you at the, on your deathbed. He will meet you anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter where you're at. You could be in the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle, one of the trenches in Bermuda. You could be down there several five, you know, five or six miles below He says, I got you. I made it all. It's nothing compared to me. Nothing. But these tribulation saints, they are going to be resurrected. We find that in Revelation chapter 20 when it talks about when the thousand years are... um, It says that I, I saw thrones... And they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. These are people who died in the tribulation period. These people are going to be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. In other words, at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. They will be resurrected. Notice what it says, that uh, these are those who did not worship the beast or his image, had not received his mark uh, on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years. They're going to live with him. They're going to be resurrected. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And that is exactly what's going to happen. Notice in verse 2 that these, having harps of God, the two instruments that are mentioned in Revelation, only two of them, the harp or the lyre and the trumpet, the only ones mentioned. And notice they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? That's the question. For you alone are holy. For all nations, all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. You know, when you think about when you compare this with the Exodus, remember in the Exodus when the children of Israel were there in Egypt and they were put into slave labor for over 200 years? They were beaten by their taskmasters. The Pharaoh who oversaw them was 
an evil man. And finally, when God brings the plagues upon Egypt, just as he's going to be bringing these plagues upon the earth, there's a lot of similarities here between the Exodus and what we're going to see in this last six vials of wrath that are going to be poured out. As the children of Israel are running from Pharaoh and his armies, remember when he got them into the the Red Sea, right at the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his armies are coming down them like a cloud. (laughs) And God tells Moses, raise up your staff. Huh? Raise up your staff. Boom. The waters part, they go through. The Egyptian army comes after them. And there's remnants of these uh, chariot wheels over there. Did you know that? I've seen pictures of them. They, They got coral all around them, but they're there in the sea, in the Red Sea. There's evidence that that happened. It's not just some kind of neat fairy tale like, you know, people like think of Jonah. Oh, that's a cute, such a cute children's story. No, it's not. It's not a story. It's history. That's happened before, by the way. Man has fallen over in a whaling ship, got swallowed by one of those big whales by accident. A couple days later, he gets, that whale gets harpooned by another ship. They bring it up. They cut it open, out comes this guy, he's still breathing, still alive. Skin is all bleached, looks kind of white, but he made it. But I'm sure it's just impossible. I'm sure it's impossible. I mean, the science doesn't, you know. Well, guess what? God is the author of science. But notice, compare this with the Jews leaving Egypt and being chased by Pharaoh, and we see the Jews and, and all the Christians, the people who are going to be giving their heart to Christ, they're going to be on the run in these last, this last half of this tribulation period. They're going to be on the run, being chased by a Pharaoh-like man called the Antichrist and his armies. They are going to be hunted. And think of how the Jews here are now going to be thinking. They're going to sing, the, uh, the, the Jewish people who are going to be on the run at this time, they're going to sing the song of Moses. They're going to sing the song of Moses. You can read Exodus chapter 15, and it's a song that, that is spoken by, uh, by Moses when they did come through the Red Sea, and finally uh, Egypt and their chariots and Pharaoh were all destroyed in the Red Sea. That Moses, in spontaneity, he breaks out into a song, and he, and he, and he speaks of God's wonders, speaks, he, he glorifies God. It's a worship service. And then he gives glory to God for his faithfulness in delivering them from their enemies. They're going to sing that song of Moses. I believe it's Exodus chapter 15. It could be Deuteronomy 32. You can read both of those. Both of those are songs that Moses spoke. But I believe 15 is the one because it speaks of deliverance from their enemies because there's going to be an enemy that's going to be chasing them down, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. The Gentiles. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 There's a portion here that certainly makes sense when you put it into context with what the Jews will be singing at this time, these folks. In Deuteronomy 32, this is a part of another song of Moses. Just look at the verses 41 through 43. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. Sounds like a Good bedtime story. (laughs) With the blood of saints, I'm sorry, with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. And his people. And what could be the song of the Lamb? Notice there's two songs that are going to be sung, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. If you remember back in uh, um, Revelation uh, chapter, um, actually I got ahead of myself there. Um, The Song of the Lamb we saw back in Revelation chapter uh, 5, verse 19. Or I'm sorry, verse 9 and 10. What is it? For you, O Lord, for you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests of our God. We shall reign on the earth. I believe that's very possibly the song of the Lamb they will sing. And they'll also sing the song of Moses, the Jews who are going to be going through that time. They will also sing that song. They will also sing that song. Notice in verse 4 that all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Right now, that's not happening. But there's coming a day in the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, that all nations will come before him. When he returns, it tells us in Matthew chapter 25, when he returns to the earth, there's going to be a judgment of nations. We call it the sheep and the goats judgment, where God is going to take those nations who have supported his people, and he's going to set them on one side, and he's going to take those who have rejected him and and been horrible to his people, he's going to set them on another side, and he's going to destroy those people of those nations who have rejected Christ and have treated his people badly. But notice what it says in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. I love the book of Zechariah. If you look at Zechariah and you look at the last three chapters, it sounds very much like the Old or the New Testament. I sometimes think of Zechariah as being a New Testament book. It's so clear in what it portrays there. It's an amazing thing that God gave to a man a long time before Jesus even came to the earth. But what does it say in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16? And it shall come to pass that everyone who has left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, what that means is that the separation of the sheep and the goats has already occurred, right? At the beginning of the millennial reign. Does that make sense? The sheep and the goats... Those nations have already been separated, and of those, notice, everyone who has left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. All nations are going to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What? There's going to be feasts still going on in the uh, the millennial reign? Absolutely. Even sacrifices. (gasps) But I thought Jesus, his sacrifice was once and for all. Yeah, absolutely. That's all that was needed. But it tells us in Ezekiel and here in Zechariah that there's still going to be sacrifices going on, not because they need to happen, but they're going to be there for memorial to remember God's faithfulness and all of those things, all of those feasts and what they stood for. They're going to be there for memorial. Do you understand? Once and for all, Jesus died on the cross. There's no more sacrifices that need to happen. It's all been done in him. But in the millennial reign, there will be sacrifices going on in memorial. And you can read that yourself. You can read it. Start in Ezekiel chapter 44 through 47 and read what we, what we read here. But notice that it says, It shall be that whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. It's almost like he's giving them a pre, uh, telling them in advance, because evidently there's going to be a problem, some kind of problem with Egypt during this time. And he's calling them out here well in advance. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if God really knows what he's talking about, do you? I mean, is he really omniscient? Does he really know all? Can he see the end from the I don't think so. I think he's just making it up. No, he's saying, no, this is going to happen. It's gonna, there's going to be a little squirm. There's going to be a little problem here, but I'm telling them now. And when they read it in the millennial reign, they're like, hmm, <laughs> sorry, Lord. And he'll say, I accept your apology. If the family of Egypt will not come up and, and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Imagine hearing that. 
hearing the bells of the horses and to see holiness to the Lord inscribed on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. What does it say in Zechariah chapter 2? Just going back to the beginning of the book of Zechariah. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. Does that sound like the millennial reign to you? It is. I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst. Isn't that what he promised? Isn't that what it says in the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe what you see on YouTube? Be very careful. Folks, can I just say something? Be very careful. Seriously. YouTube, there's good things on YouTube, but there is a lot of mess on YouTube. Don't believe everything you see. Don't even believe everything you hear. I'm done. Seriously. So much deception out there. It's worse than it's ever been And it will continue. Do not listen to it. Cut the cable. Everybody go to Home Depot today and buy one of those pruning shears, the really sharp one made by Fiskars, and buy one and go outside to your house and look at that white cable that's attaching to the line and go, hmm, snap, you'll be the better for it. You'll be the better for it. Read your Bible. Stop spending so much time with social media and the news. And I got, I'm, as I'm saying that, I got three fingers on each finger pointing right back at me. But folks, the more we spend with Jesus, the greater joy, the greater witness we're going to be. The less we do, the worse off we're going to be. So you have to make the decision. I, I need to start making those decisions. Amen? Maybe you do too. I say that out of love. Okay? I say that out of love to you. For you. What does it say in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22 and 23? For as the new, and this is 700 years BC, Isaiah writes this prophecy, 700 years BC, so we're looking at at least 2,700 years ago, he writes something. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will, which I shall, which shall, I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Does that sound like the millennial reign? He's he's drawing a comparison there. I mean, certainly the new heavens and the new earth are going to happen, but he says even before that, all flesh is going to come. Do we believe what we just read in Revelation here in our verse? All nations are going to come. They're going to come. They're going to come. There'll be no debating it. There'll be no going to the Supreme Court. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. You remember that before Moses built the tabernacle, God told him to make it according to the pattern of the one that was shown him on the mount. When he was on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, as he was given instruction, God says, I want to give you the plan, the blueprint for the tabernacle that I want you to make. And it's just like the one that's in glory. And he gives him the pattern of it. And this tabernacle of the testimony literally is where he's speaking of the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be where the two tables of stone would be that would contain the Ten Commandments. That is what is meant here by the tabernacle of the testimony. And in the Old Testament, we see it named that very thing. I'll just give you one verse. In Exodus 38, notice, this is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. We just read it, didn't we? He's speaking of the same thing. He's speaking of the same thing. Notice in verse 6 now, he says, And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded about with golden bands. 
I love that. The decree of judgment, where does it come? It comes directly from the throne of God, the one who is almighty God, the one who is all-powerful, the one who cannot be unseated, the one whose throne is set in heaven. There is no one, no one who's big enough to knock him off the mountain. He is the king of the mountain, amen? He is the king of the mountain, amen? Yes, he is. And notice verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath. Notice, one of the four living creatures. How many are there? There's four. Just one of them. Here you go, guys. He's probably got a platter. Bowls of wrath. Here you go. Thank you very much. Where are the spoons? The angels, the seven, seven angels, actually, seven angels give... The four li- one of the four living creatures give to the seven angels the bowls of wrath. And notice in verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke. Notice, underline the word smoke, and we'll, I'll show you why in just a moment. The temple was filled with smoke. What do you have when you have smoke? Does, doesn't, that pres- doesn't that presume that there's fire? Does smoke just occur? Or is there fire and then there's smoke? Something has to be on fire for there to be smoke, Right? Smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple in heaven till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. There is a difference between smoke and the cloud or the Shekinah glory of God. You know the difference? If we just look at smoke, let's just look at a couple things and we'll finish up here. We're almost done. Smoke is, wherever there is smoke, there is first a fire. And fire is the symbol of God's judgment. It's the symbol of God's wrath. We've seen this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, when God was giving the Ten Commandments, or about to give the Ten Commandments to Moses. What does it say in Exodus 19, verse 18? It says, now Mount Sinai was was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in what? In fire. In fire, its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Why was it smoke? Was it because he was going to be delivering really good news? No, he was going to be delivering bad news. (laughs) The judgments, the commandments, are those good news? The commandments aren't good news, folks. (laughs) It's God's holy standard that that we could never do. We're condemned by those Ten Commandments, and rightly so. But didn't Jesus fulfill the law in his death and resurrection? In his death, didn't he fulfill it? Wasn't the price sufficient? Wasn't it paid? No longer a blood animal, no longer the sacrifice of an animal needed to be done. The one Lamb of God was sacrificed, and that was sufficient for God. It was a sweet savor unto God the Father. A sweet savor In Isaiah chapter 6, notice when Isaiah was commissioned, it says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Here Isaiah seeing a vision of of this same throne room that we're reading about today. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow. Can you imagine the glorious character and the the scene of this? Oh, just let your, read these passages and let your mind just get carried away and forget about everything. Who needs a bubble bath? Who needs a cup of coffee? I mean, I would encourage you to have the coffee, especially if it's really good. But the comfort that comes from reading this almighty God and who he really is in his throne room. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah, I saw the Lord sitting in it, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. Two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one cried to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. To the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I believe. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Why smoke? Because the prophecy that was going to be given by God to Isaiah to tell Israel was not a good one. Judgment was coming. When God speaks of, when it speaks of smoke, it speaks of judgment because there's fire. Like that sea of glass mingled with fire, it's not a good scene. What's coming afterward is very foreboding, very foreboding. But what about, what about, uh, what about the cloud? The cloud is a whole different thing. 
We read about it in Exodus chapter 40. Remember when the tabernacle was first put up? When they're in the desert, God gave them the plans. Moses and the Levites, they began building the tabernacle. I love that. And they build it up. And what does it say in Exodus 40, verse 34? It says, then the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God, a cloud, notice, not smoke, but the cloud of God, the Shekinah glory covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle. Why? Because he was coughing and spitting because of the smoke? No, no smoke here. This is God's blessing. God's presence. Very different thing. Do you see the difference? The Shekinah glory, the very presence of God. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. One final verse. First Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. This is when Solomon, Solomon built the temple. Remember, David could not build the temple. God says, David, you can't build the temple. You're a man of blood. And so David says, well, if I can't build the temple, I'm going to raise the cash to get it done. And God says, okay. So the rest of David's life was consumed in preparing the materials for this temple that God had told him to build. In fact, God gave to David the blueprint. And he said, let your son do it. You can give him the blueprint. You can prepare everything for him. But you give it into his hands. Say, son, you take that. And here, by the way, here are some really great guys. Bezalel and Aholiab. Take these guys. They're gifted in everything. They're like, they're like our, our brother John. <laughs> and other men in the body who are really gifted in what they do. Take those two guys. They're going to, com- they're going to help complete it. They'll be the overseers of it, and it's going to be a glorious thing. You do it. And it says in 1 Kings 8, verse 10, it says, And it came to pass that when the priests, after they had finished building the Solomon's temple, the first temple, when the priests came out of the holy place, notice that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, not smoke because there's no judgment here. This is God's presence. And how I love the thought of God's presence. Don't you want God's presence? Did you know that you can have God's presence in in light of the difficulties that we're facing today? We're still going to meet, folks. We're going to meet. There's an occupancy thing on the back of, our, of, the, of the, behind the sound booth. You know what it says the occupancy of this room is? 634 people. Do you see 634 people here this morning? Right now we're supposed to be at 50%. I am going on a tangent, I know that. But... 634, you divide that in half, that's still 317 people. We could add another 200 people here, and guess what? We would still be compliant with what's going on right now. Even if they probably said 25%, we would still be compliant. So keep coming. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. Take your vitamin C. (laughs) Take care of yourself. Do the right things. But God help us. Let's continue to meet. Let's not let any of the nonsense keep us away ever again. I don't know about you, but I've had it. And I may be in the flesh. It's possible. I mean, it's possible any time. But what I'm saying right now, I really don't want us to close down again. I don't think it's necessary. Not for this. If the bubonic plague broke out, now that I've mentioned it, maybe they'll make it happen. They want to shut everything down to reset, a global reset. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound great? The whole world will be as one. Give me a break. That's not God's plan. That plan is going to be judged. I can tell you that with all assurance. And it's coming. Just a matter of time. We're being very well prepared for it. But God's presence, I want to get back to that. Even in the midst of all this stuff that we're going through, ask the Lord to meet you, and he will meet you, and you can be like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail in Acts 16. You can be in the worst of circumstances, and you can be singing hymns at midnight. Amen? Amen? Because, listen, things aren't going to get better. The Bible doesn't say they're going to get better. 
It's not going to get better. But you and I can get better. (laughs) And our lives can shine for the glory of Christ right up to the very end, whenever that is, until the Lord takes us. But that doesn't mean that we lay down and roll over and play dead. When, I remember when COVID hit, and just bear with me for another few moments, and we'll get out of here, I promise. I remember when I, we came back from Israel in March, March 12th, it was on a Thursday, I believe. We got back and then had Friday and Saturday to figure out how we can get the church online, because I, I, I didn't want to just cancel the service on Sunday morning. And let me tell you, that was a hard, one of the hardest moments of my life with all the technical things that I never had to consider before. And now we gotta, we, we got to do this, or you know, we got to do this quickly. And everyone was doing the same thing, and you, you, you're put on hold. Everybody's doing it, you know. But even then, the presence of God, and I love how he worked and how he's still doing things. Never give up on him and seek him out. Seek him out. Seek the Lord while he may be found, even for us as Christians. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have to do it today. You have to do it today. Do not leave. Find someone. You can, I'll, I'll be glad to pray with you, but pray with somebody. Say, you know what? I've heard this, and I am a little uneasy about the way things are going, but I know God is good, and I want him because he wants you. He wants you more than you want him. Isn't that amazing? He loves you, folks. He is not done. You keep your eyes focused on him. And until he returns, or until death take us, let's be about our Father's business. Let's be about serving him, glorifying him, doing the right things, walking a life in purity before him. In everything, every aspect of our life, let him search you with his flashlight, with his golden with his golden light. Let him take it and consume your whole being and say, is there any darkness in me? Like David, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked and way in me. And then lead me in the path of righteousness. Lead me in the way of righteousness. Oh God, save, preserve Heal and revive the church, Lord. We don't need to be saved so much as, but it's interesting. the The word, you know, we're saved, but we still need to be saved. Does that make sense? That's how great that word is to be saved in Christ. He, he saved you. It's a done deal. But you're also needing to be saved. Every single day of my life, I want to be saved. But ultimately, I know that I'm going to be saved. That's the tense of the word. It's, a, it's very big. So let's stand together. Be encouraged. Be encouraged and seek the Lord and say, Lord, pour your spirit out upon me. As I'm reading this psalm this morning, Lord, pour it out on me. Pour it out on me. Flood my life with everything you've got, Lord. I want everything you've got. Pour it upon my head like a torrent of water, like Niagara Falls. Can you imagine sitting at the base of Niagara Falls and those millions and billions of gallons of rushing water just rushing right over? Say, Lord, just toast me in it. Pickle me in it. Marinate me in your presence, Lord. I want to just sit there and I want to receive all that you have and I want to be pickled. You want to be pickled? Let the Lord saturate you today all throughout this week. Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray that, Lord, you do that. You'd pickle us. Saturate us completely with your love, with your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.